Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Oh, hey, did you sign up for our coffee subscription card? Uh, I mean, all the coffee you can drink, first month free. What's not to like, right? There's nothing, nothing to be ashamed about that. Why would you drink that rubbish? It's run-of-the-mill, it's mass-produced, it's substandard brown water. I wouldn't even call it coffee. I only drink coffee that's made with fresh, roasted Arabica beans, freshly ground, poured over in a Chemex brewer, bloomed with 200 degree Fahrenheit filtered water with a precise one to 17 coffee to water ratio. Well, that's a completely made up hypothetical opinion, of course, but that's just the way people are. People, are, people draw lines and they divide, they create boundaries to determine who's in and who's out. It's not just in coffee. In the last few years, we've witnessed gatekeeping, we've witnessed othering to rise to such a polarizing level that there's no longer any middle ground. You either have to be for or you have to be against. You have to be in or you have to be out. There's no dialogue, no more discourse. You just have to pick a side. Now, I don't want to tell you what side to pick. It's not my job. I, I think that's a question that requires wisdom on, on your part. But look at what is going on in our world. Look at, look at, look at the world of politics. Look at the world of economics, the question of justice the question of care for our environment. These things have polarized people. People are separated. People are separating and they're dividing and they're getting further and further away from each other. And this is not just an American problem. It's not just a UK problem. It's not even just a Western problem. This is happening around the world. And really, it's a human problem. You see, back in Genesis, in the, first, in the first bit of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, the perfect world, sin entered the world through an act of disobedience. And immediately following that, the blame and shame game came into being. Hi, I'm Ray. Um, it's my pleasure to be part of the team here at Westminster Chapel, and it's my privilege to continue this study with you through the first chapter of Ephesians in this series called Unashamed. Now, last week, Howard finished off that first section of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, where Paul goes on this magnificent run-on sentence describing the rich theological reality that we have now being in Christ. We are chosen. We are predestined. We are adopted. We are redeemed. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. There's this new reality now, this new paradigm, a new way of seeing things now that we are in Christ. 
And in Christ, Paul writes, the Jew and Gentile, these, these, these people groups that were once enemies are being brought together under one covenant family under God. And this week, we're going to look at verses 15 to 18. This is the start of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And he starts it off by saying, for this reason, which means for this reason. It means everything that Paul has said before, everything that he said in verses 3 to 14, he's now going to apply and, and pray for his Ephesian readers. Now, we've heard already in previous weeks that Paul is writing to these non-Jewish Gentile believers in and around Ephesus. There's two things that we should know about them, two things that we should know about their context. First, these were the Ephesians. These, they were new to the family of God. They were outside the Jewish people, and so they were new to being included into the family of God. I, I sort of think of it like this. It's sort of like it's sort of like they started a new job, um, and, and they're in uh, and they're in in the first day of work. And at first, they don't know what's going on. There's things going around all around them, um, and, and 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 there's just no clue about what's going on. And then, in that situation, you start feeling well. Oh, start feeling a bit insecure about what you wrote on your CV. Uh, did I really write that? Did I say that I know how to do that? And you start feeling a sense of shame, right? You start feeling, oh, do I really belong here? I I think that the Ephesians probably felt something similar, being the the, the non-Jewish, rather, the Gentiles people coming in. They were the newbies. Number two, they were not just outcasts, separate from the Jewish believers. They, They were outcasts now, from the people that they once belonged to, their neighbors. You see, in becoming followers of Jesus, the, the Ephesian believers had to turn their back and to walk away from all the customs and the practices of the people around them. They no longer worshipped the many gods of the, of the Greek and Roman pantheon. They no longer conducted themselves in business and commerce the same way. They no longer indulge in the excesses and, and, and the leisure that, the, that their neighbors did. You might imagine then that the, the people around these Ephesians, Ephesian believers, uh, the, the Gentile people around them, that they were started to become distrustful of them. These were the, the, the odd people out. They're, they're, they're those people, you know, the followers of the way. Where did these people belong? Where did these believers belong now? Where are they from? And where are they going? You see, they probably felt like they just didn't belong. They were outcasts. And no matter where they went, they were on the outside. You know, the Ephesians should have been racked with shame, shouldn't they? They should have been racked with shame, being outcasts, dual outcasts from both the, the Jewish brothers and sisters and also their Gentile family, their neighbors. But they weren't. They weren't. We learned something remarkable about them in Paul's prayer for them. You see, they lived differently. They, they lived unashamed. They were freed. They were liberated from the oppressive othering that they might have experienced as, as outcasts in that society. How did they do that? Well, we're going to look at 
Paul's prayer for them in three ways. First, we're going to look at what the prayer reveals about what's important. What the prayer reveals about what's important. This is the priority of the Christian life. Second, we're going to, we're going to see what the prayer asks for. What does Paul petition God for? And what ought we to petition God for? And thirdly, how is the prayer answered? How, how do the Ephesians live in this way? How do they get the power to live unashamed? Well, first, we're going to look at the priority of the Christian life, the most important thing. See, Paul tells the Ephesians that he has not stopped giving thanks for them. He's remembering them in his prayers. Or, or put it another way, every time that Paul prays, he can't help himself but to give thanks for them. How is this? What, what's going on with the Ephesians that, that Paul is uncontrollable in his, in his thanksgiving? It's just spilling out of him in prayer. Well, we know Paul's history with the Ephesians. He, in, in Acts chapter 19, we know that Paul spent over two years having daily discussions with them. And now Paul is writing this letter in a prison in Rome. And in prison, he's hearing reports about them. He's hearing about their reputation. And what does he hear? He hears something that makes his heart leap with joy. Yes, they've got it. They understand. You see, the Ephesians has, have captured the essence of Paul's life and his mission, everything that he labored for. And this is what he, this is what he heard. He heard two things from them. He heard of their faith and he heard of their love. These two things are the priority of the Christian life. First, the faith that they had. The faith in the Lord Jesus, the first part of verse 15. Now, we think of faith today primarily with this sort of religious lens. There's this, there's, there's religious space and then there's, there's this public space. Religious space is private. Uh, public space, that, that has to be secular. Religion is what you do in your own time, not what you do publicly. Now, faith is, is that, yes. Um, it's trust. It's, it's belief. It's, it's something that you hold dear. But it's so much more. Uh, for, for Paul's audience, to be an upstanding citizen of Rome, you had to do more than just give your agreement to, to the Roman authorities. You had to do more than just agree that Caesar was the emperor. You had to bend the knee. You had to bow down to the, the, the prevailing view that Caesar was not just an emperor. He was not just a man in authority, but that he was a god in and of himself. That meant that everything that you did, your, your possessions, your treasures, everything that you had, Caesar was a lord of that. Here's where the Ephesians' faith is so subversive. Because... The Ephesians had their faith in the Lord Jesus. They lived in such a way so that they were publicly known, so much so that Paul is receiving reports of this in Rome, that, that no, no, these, these, these believers are not living with Caesar as Lord. They're living with Jesus as Lord. Faith in the Lord Jesus means that no other thing, no other person or thing 
will usurp the lordship of Jesus. It meant that everything that they had, everything that, that they treasured, everything that they owned, everything that they are was bound up in Jesus Christ and that he is Lord. You see, this wholehearted faith that the, that the Ephesians expressed and they lived out, that, that brought joy and thanksgiving to Paul. And it ought to bring joy and thanksgiving to us as well. But it wasn't alone, you see. It wasn't just that. Another characteristic that, that the Ephesians had confirmed that the faith that was reported. The second part of verse 15. Love for all God's people. Love. Here was the proof that the faith that was reported was not just polite intellectual assent. No, the faith that was reported was the, the faith that was reported was acted on and it was lived out in love. It was lived out in love toward toward each other, toward their, their family, towards their, their friends. No, it was love acted out in love for all God's people. Now, that's not quite as easy as it sounds. After all, if it was so simple to just simply love one another... Why did Jesus explicitly command this to his disciples? Why did he say in, in John 13, 35, by all men, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Do you know who the hardest people to love are? That's right. That's right. Your own family. You know, you don't get to choose your family. You know your family. You know each other's flaws. You know each other's secrets. And for goodness sake, they should just know better. It's hard to love family when you know all these things. But this is exactly what Paul is saying here. In Christ, all of God's people, everyone, they're all one family. All of the things in the world that would otherwise divide people and separate people outside of this family. All of those things like your, your, your social status, your wealth, your, your, the, the way you wore your hair, your, 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 the jobs that you did, your physical appearance, the, the color of your skin. These things that would divide people outside of this family now are brought together into this family under one head, even Christ. You see, the Ephesians were able to demonstrate a radical love for each other that transcended the, the Jew and the Gentile divide. It transcended the slave and the servant divide, the male and female divide, that together in this, in this family that they understood was now the new family of God, they were able to love each other. Pastor and author Tim Keller recently tweeted this. He said, Unless the world sees people getting along inside the churches and between the churches who out in the world don't get along, why won't they think we're just like any other cultural group or political group? Ouch. That really challenges me. That really ought to challenge all of us 
that we ought to strive for a radical love and unity in Christ at Westminster Chapel that celebrates diversity. It doesn't wipe it away, but it celebrates diversity. It celebrates difference, but it brings love and it bridges across age, it bridges across race and culture, it bridges across status, it bridges across ability, and that that same love and unity in Christ would spill over into churches across London and across denominational differences and across spiritual and cultural heritage so that even though there are differences and there are distinctions, those differences are tiny compared to the all-surpassing love that we have received from the Father through Jesus Christ, through the outworking of his Spirit in us. Do you want that? Faith and love. These are the priorities of the Christian life. That brings us to the second point. What what does Paul pray for? What is he praying for? What does he show us that we ought to pray for? And what, what, how do we ask God for these things? So first we had the priority of the Christian life. Now we have the, the petition of prayer. What do we pray for? First, notice that despite the tremendous witness of faith and love that's being reported to Paul, Paul doesn't just stop with giving thanks. He doesn't just stop with praying. He keeps praying. He's praying continually for them. He keeps asking of God. You see, these Christians, they're growing already, and it's Paul's understanding that in order for them to keep growing and for to keep growing in Christ, that prayer is essential. Let that be an encouragement to us. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Petitioning prayer, asking of God. It's not just only for for crisis moments where, where your situation needs to change, where you need to overcome something, where you need to break through. That's not the only time you need to ask and come to God for something. It's for the good moments as well. It's for when you're celebrating something. You want those good moments to become great. You want them to become the best. Uh, Tim Mackey, uh, one of the podcasters of the Bible Project, puts it this way. He says, prayer is adding fuel to a fire already burning. Prayer is adding fuel to a fire already burning. Now, what's on fire in a good way now that you can add fuel to by continually praying? What is that thing? So, what does, what does Paul pray for? He, he continuously prays for them. He adds to this, this fire that's on inside of them, but he prays for something specific. There's, there's a phrase in, in the passage here that's repeated in this prayer. And every time that you see a phrase that's repeated, you, you should start paying attention. You should highlight that. Uh, the phrase here is, that you may know. That you may know. You see, this phrase acts almost like like a a fulcrum in a lever. It's a turning point, a a point of cause and effect. On one side, you have Paul asking for the spirit of wisdom 
and of revelation, and, and that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And then on this side, you have Paul asking for the result of that petition. What does he ask for? He says, that you may know him better, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, that the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Remember that this prayer is not just a, a prayer out of nowhere. It's, it's a prayer that is seeking to apply everything that Paul has said previously in verses 3 to 14. When he says spirit of wisdom and revelation, this is an expression asking for spiritual insight, spiritual insight, wisdom. And what is that wisdom? It's, it's to understand God's purpose, God's will. It's not it's not just to understand his will in this circumstance or that circumstance in this thing or that thing. No, it's not just any old purpose. It's specifically God's special saving purpose in Christ. This is the mystery of his will revealed in Christ that Paul says in verse 9. So it's, it's for spiritual wisdom. It's for spiritual wisdom to understand where we are in God's saving purposes. And then he uses the phrase, the eyes of your heart. Now, this is an Old Testament language. This is a, a, a phrase that, that, that references Old Testament language where the heart is, uh, we often think about it as a, as a seat of our feelings, but the heart was the seat of the physical, the, 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 the spiritual, the mental, the, the everything, the everything inner life of a person. It captures everything about a person, the heart of a person. And, and, and for that to be enlightened, for the eyes of your heart to be enlightened, it's, it's, like, a, it's, it's like a sense of revelation, it's a sense of an impartation of knowledge. It's not just it's not just head knowledge. Yeah? It's not just head knowledge. It's not just heart knowledge in the way that we think. It's not just feelings either. It's everything. It's it's knowledge that moves you. Your physical being, your spiritual being, your mental being. It moves you. It's it's a full-bodied experience. And so this is what Paul is praying for, that, that we would have this revelation from God and that we would experience the rich treasures that he's already described in Christ. And the result of this is that we would know him better. Who's him? This is God, that having understood that God's ultimate purpose in Christ, we would know God, God the Father better. You see, we need to know more we need more than just knowing about God. We need to know God. We need to know him as father. We need to know that, that his power and presence is with us in every circumstance. You know, Paul's prayer is for us to understand that. It's to, for us to understand where we fit in. It's to give us perspective so that in every circumstance, whether good or bad, in joy or sorrow, we can escape being defined by that circumstance. We can escape the shame that comes from the negative circumstances and, so, and that each circumstance with this wisdom that Paul prays for, with this wisdom that comes from God, we would have an opportunity to know God better. That's his petition. 
That's what he asked for. He asked that that we would receive wisdom, knowledge, and full-bodied experience that comes from God, by the way. It's not from inside of us. It's not something that we can conjure up from within ourselves. This is something that's revealed and given to us by God. It's a gift from God to know God better. What's the, what's the answer that Paul is expecting? What's the answer to this prayer? Where can we find the power to actually live this way? Here's, here's where the prayer is answered, and, and it's in two things, hope and treasure. There's actually three parts, three answers to, to Paul's prayer, but we're only dealing with the first two this week, and next week we'll, we'll look into the third. Knowing God... Knowing God means knowing hope. Hope is the future reality that gives life meaning today. Hope is future reality. Future reality that gives life meaning today. Now, let me be clear, because I, I, I think this can be uh, misinterpreted in some ways. I don't want this to be taken the, long, the wrong way. This is not saying that future hope, future hope gives meaning to your present circumstances. It can, but it doesn't mean that your the future hope gives meaning to your present circumstances. What do I mean by that? It means that if you're experiencing trial, if you're suffering, if you're if you're sick, if you've lost someone or something, God didn't do that to you. God doesn't do that to you. God doesn't just do things to you that, 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 you know, that, 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 that push you so that, you know, God doesn't operate on this. Uh, if that doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger idea. That's not what I mean when I, when, when, when I say future hope, that this hope that we have. No, the hope that God can give us is hope, future reality that can that can transcend, that can make our present experience, our present circumstances, our present sufferings as of nothing. Because that future is coming. That future is breaking in. We can count on it. And it means that every little thing that happens to us now doesn't have to define us. We're not defined by that. What is, what is this hope? What is this hope that he's talking about? Well, it's nothing less than what he's talked about already. It's the adoption in Christ. Our adoption in Christ so that we are are sons, adopted sons of God. We share in his inheritance. Now, if that reality is true, if, if we are truly adopted sons of God, then all of life's circumstances, none of it, good or bad, has any power to determine the meaning of our circumstances because we are we are in that future hope that future hope is a reality that is sure so knowing god means knowing the sure hope that we have in christ jesus knowing god also means knowing the riches of his inheritance the riches of his inheritance what does that mean his inheritance. It's, it's, not, it's not our inheritance. 
Um, when we talk about our inheritance, Paul, Paul does say our inheritance earlier on. He's talking about our redemption and our salvation. But this is, this is his inheritance. Uh, it's not often that we think about God having an inheritance, is it? Uh, after all, what would God do with an inheritance? What, where, would he, where would he spend it? What would he do with it? Where, where's it coming from? But we actually see this, this term, this phrase used in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. And it's talking about Israel. Here it reads, But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you are now. In a similar way, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Israel was called God's inheritance. God's treasured possession. God's chosen people. They were chosen to be blessed by God and chosen to be a blessing to others. But in the history of Israel, Israel doesn't ever fully realize this. But now there's a new family. There's a new family in Christ. In Christ, the new covenant family of God comes together. It's constituted and it is, it is fully realized because in Christ, we have received every blessing. And now, we, because we have received every blessing, we can be a blessing to others. So in Christ, this inheritance, this, this treasured possession of God is realized and it is made manifest here on earth. Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, the, the, the beloved, begotten Son of God, who's fully loved, fully accepted, fully belonging in the intricate dance of the love in the Trinity. This is the good news that through Christ, in Christ, you have a share in that. And it's not just any share. It's not just a part of it. You get a full inheritance as the adopted son of God, because in Christ, we are the treasured inheritance of God. He treasures us. He treasures us as he treasures his only begotten son. In Christ, it means it means that you're no longer on the outside. It means knowing, knowing, experiencing, your full-bodied experiencing that you are treasured, you are wanted, you are desired, you are adopted into the family of God. And as surely as the Father loves the Son, the Father loves you. And He loves you. And you belong to Him with a fierce love. In one of the opening scenes of the Chosen series uh, that's, on, that's on YouTube uh, the, uh, about the life of Jesus, Mary Magdalene has the eyes of her heart enlightened. She experiences the redeeming love of God through Jesus as the words of the prophet Isaiah in as Isaiah chapter 43 become reality for her. Here, here are the words. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. 
You are mine. Do you know that love? Have you experienced that love? Have have, have the eyes of your heart been opened to that love? This love, it will shatter every hold of shame that, that, that has on you. It will lift you up. It will lift you up to experience the rich blessings that we have in Christ. Oh, that we would know this. Oh, that, that, that God would give us this uh, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Oh, that, that we would know him better. Oh, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. Oh, that we would know the hope and to, to which he has called us. And we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance. Oh, that this would be our prayer. Oh, that this would be our prayer for ourselves and for each other. That we would be transformed by the love of God in Christ, called out, predestined, chosen, adopted, sealed, to be blessed and to be a blessing. Oh, would that happen, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.